Well, welcome back tonight. And we are jumping straight into and concluding this lesson 10 in this Doctrines of Grace study on unconditional election. And this, this lesson 10, which you hopefully still have your handout from last time or, or picked one up today, it's, it's a two-parter lesson 10. And part one was last week, and in case you weren't here, or just, just for the fun, but anyway, to get you back up to speed, I'll, I'll do that right now because to, to, we're going to jump into point number four on the handout in a second. But as you all know, we've been studying this topic of God's sovereignty and election for quite some time now. And we've been studying both sides of this age-old debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, which, which both believe in election. They both believe that God has chosen some to believe. They differ on, of course, the, the means of that election or, or God's choice. They differ on the basis of how God made his choice, as we've, we've studied for weeks now. So back in Lesson 8, we, we studied the Arminian side of the equation, and they believe that God made his choice conditionally. It's referred to as conditional election, where God, he conditioned his choice of the elect based on his foreseen faith of, of those who would believe. In other words, God chose those whom he foreknew would choose him of their own free will. So we spent plenty of time seeking to understand that view, and then we spent plenty of time as well really refuting and rejecting that view, seeing that it's, it's not taught in Scripture. There are no verses that support it. And there's uh, several fatal flaws as well. So that was all Lesson 8 and Lesson 9, in case you're interested in going back. Now we're here and we're in Lesson number 10. And we're looking at the other side of the debate concerning Calvinism. And Calvinists believe that God made his electing choice unconditionally. And so that's where their side is referred to as unconditional election. Again, they both believe in election. It's just conditional or unconditional. An unconditional election really just means that God, he made his choice based on his own will, his own will, his own plans, his own purposes, not according to anything foreseen in man or, or otherwise, but simply according to his own perfect yet hidden counsel. He has acted and he has chosen. It pictures God's will as being supreme and not man's. And after all, Scripture teaches that God works all things after the counsel of his will, not man's will. And and Calvinists teach that includes salvation. That includes election. So starting last week, we spent the first chunk of our time just seeking to further explain and explore that view, the view of unconditional election. And then we spent the other half of our time last week going on to explore that the biblical testimony, that this is taught in Scripture. It's, it is explicitly and expressly revealed that God has chosen and he based his choice unconditionally based on nothing other than his own will, his own plan and purposes. We didn't quite finish though, so today we're back for the second part of that. We're going to continue in just really just a Bible study on what the Bible says about the basis of God's choice. How did he make that choice? Was it according to man's will or was it according to God's will? Well, last week we covered Points 1, 2, and 3, we, we've organized the biblical support for unconditional election under four points. If you have your handout, just by way of very quick review, I'll just repeat them. We found number one, God's choice of the elect was not passive, but active. Not reactive, but proactive. And that's, if you're a fill-in-the-blank type of person, that's your blank number one. God's choice of the elect was not passive, but active. Not reactive, but proactive. 
I see a few people not here last week, last week, so I'll give you a minute to, to fill that in. And if you want the details of all those verses, you can get last week's message on the website hopefully soon. Number two, God's choice of the elect was not based on foreseen merit or good works. It was not based on foreseen merit or good works. It's number two. And then number three, God's choice of the elect was not based on foreseen faith. So his choice was not passive but active, not reactive but proactive. It was not based on foreseen merit or good works. It was not based on foreseen faith. There's three points we've covered so far. I'll finish all that last week. And in in that study, we've seen many verses teaching explicitly that that God really chose. It was not a passive choice. He, he actually chose who would believe, and it was not based on anything foreseen in man, either faith or works. So any notion of conditional election has only been further demolished by this study. Now, at the same time, though, this study is admittedly incomplete until we include verses that explicitly teach that God made his choice based on his own will. That's what we've been claiming for some time. And to be fair, we've, we've actually already seen many verses which, which teach that already, uh, although we were studying other things at the time. But tonight what we're going to do is spend our time exclusively studying just that. Several key passages which explicitly and expressly teach that the basis of God's choice in election was his own will, his own plan, his own purposes. We've already seen all the negatives. It wasn't based on man's will. It wasn't based on man's faith. It wasn't based on man's work, uh, works, rather. But God actively and proactively chose. Tonight, we're going to fill in that last blank. Uh, it was according to his own perfect will. So hopefully this gets you back up to speed. And uh, we'll spend our time just with this last point here, number four, which, again, if you're a fill-in-the-blank type of person, Number four, God's choice of the elect was unconditional, based on nothing other than his own will, purposes, and mercy. God's choice of the elect was unconditional, based on nothing other than his own will, purposes, and mercy. And so with that, we're just going to jump into these verses and go through and let them speak for themselves. One more time, God's choice of the elect was unconditional based on nothing other than his own will, purposes, and mercy. Okay, now you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. If you brought a Bible, or you can listen along, but it's better if you turn, see for yourself Matthew chapter 11. Part of the context here in Matthew 11, people are questioning Jesus and even rejecting Jesus, much like they rejected John. And so he goes on to explain why people do not recognize him, do not accept him. Why do they take offense at him? Why is he not accepted? And to the contrary, why do some accept him? Why do some believe in him? In Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus says, after pronouncing judgment on cities that rejected him Jesus says this verse 25 Matthew 11 at that time Jesus said I praise you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants 
Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. In verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. We've actually, this is another verse we've seen several times. I told you we'd look at them now uh, explicitly pointing out uh, what they're teaching, where Christ himself says that, that the Father has hidden some things from the wise, revealed them to infants, that the way of salvation. Why? Verse 26, it was well-pleasing in God's sight. Two important words are used here denoting the basis of God's choice. Why did God reveal truth to some and, and actively conceal it from others? Well, because verse 26, it was well-pleasing in his sight. This word for well-pleasing, we'll, we'll see again, God acting according to his own pleasure. He does that which he sees to be fitting in his own eyes. Also, who comes to know the Father through the Son? Jesus said, verse 27, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. It's an exclusive relationship. You don't know the Father except who? And the end of verse 27. Except those whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Who comes to know the Father through the Son? Only those whom the Son wills to reveal. Whose will is at, in discussion here? Man's free will or, or Christ's free will? You see, it's his will. It's not up to man and his will. It's up to Christ and his divine will. He's teaching that those who are saved, those who accept Jesus, those who did not take offense at him, those who believed, they owe their belief to the Father's good pleasure and to Christ revealing the truth to them that they might believe. Yeah, you've got to believe, but it was Christ who enabled you to believe, who revealed the Father to you that you would believe. And and. And there was nothing in man that directed God's choice or his pleasure. God sovereignly, according to his own plan, gave enlightenment to some and and not others. Now, look at verses 28 through 30. After this, notice what Jesus says. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We will see later how the truth of unconditional election, it's not incompatible with a universal invitation, invitation to receive Jesus. It doesn't change the fact that, that dead sinners are unable to respond unless, unless God enlightens them. But the point I'm making here is that Calvinism actually fully upholds both sides of man's responsibility in salvation and God's sovereignty in salvation. Both are true. Both are taught throughout Scripture, and you find them side by side throughout Scripture. You must believe to be saved, and Christ calls all to come to believe in him. But it doesn't change the fact that only those whom the Son wills will respond to that call, can respond to that call, as we've established in total depravity, total inability, Nobody can answer that universal call unless God does something to them, intervenes, opens their eyes, because we are dead in sin. Arminians, they're quick to point out verses 28 through 30, as if it supports their case, saying, look, 
Jesus invites everyone to believe, right? So that must mean everyone can believe and can be saved. But in upholding man's responsibility, they, they tear down God's sovereignty. You don't often see them, including the verse before that, verse 27, which says, No one knows the Father except those whom the Son wills to reveal. So that, that puts God in the driver's seat of salvation. It, it's, it's up to him. They don't often include that verse. But Calvinism, Calvinism actually seeks to uphold both truths that, look, God is sovereign in salvation, and you are responsible in salvation as well. They stand, stand side by side. But we simply take at face value all the passages which teach that behind the scenes, the only people who are going to believe, who are going to positively respond to the call, unlike the ones earlier in the chapter whom Jesus condemned, the only people who will respond to that universal call are those whom the Son willed to reveal. That's the teaching of Scripture, and that is the teaching of unconditional election. It, God, This is God's doing. He's ultimately sovereign over salvation. And that's where the Arminians will say, well, that's not fair. Yeah, they'll say that's not fair, and next, next time we meet... We finally get to all those objections. You know, the, the questions and objections. It's not just. It's not fair. What about evangelism? That's all next time. So we're not, we're not skipping over those because some of you might think in your, in your heart right now, you might not be antagonistic, but might question like, that doesn't, that doesn't feel fair. Just wait till next week. We'll, we'll answer all those questions. But for now, we're just going to study the, the testimony. It says what it says. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue to make sense of it more next week as well. Now turn to John chapter 1. We're going to keep going. Plenty of verses to cover. John chapter 1. We'll look at verses 12 and 13. You know, the beginning of John's gospel, Christ, he's the light. Verse 9, he teaches Jesus came into the world. He, he gives light to every man, all people. But in verses 10 and 11, he teaches how his own people, meaning Israel, they did not receive him. They rejected the light. But some people believed, and verse 12 talks about them. Verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So, what he's teaching right here is the physical descendants of Abraham, the, the supposed children of God, Israel, they rejected Christ. But there was a believing remnant consisting of all those who believed in Jesus and received him. And to these people, John says, Jesus gave the right to be the true children of God. Just because you're physically a Jew doesn't make you a true child of God. It's those who believe who are the true children of God. And so verse 12, he is highlighting man's responsibility, salvation by faith. You have to believe. Only those who believe become God's children. But how do such people come to believe? How do they come to believe? Well, look at verse 13, the next verse. He says, speaking of those who believe in Christ's name, he says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, verse 13, it directly addresses the question we're asking here. The whole question these past several studies, like both Arminians and Calvinists believe in election. The question is, what is the basis of God's choice? 
Is he choosing people? Is he saving people based on man's will or God's will? Man's choice or God's choice? This verse, verse 13, directly addresses that question. How many people are placed into God's family? Or rather, how are people placed, is what I meant to say. How, how are people placed into God's family? Is it by God's will or man's will? And this verse answers about as directly as possible. It says, believers were born, we'll talk about that word born in a second, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you weren't made a child of God by lineage, by natural means, or even by your will, but by God. You were entered into the family, you were saved from start to finish by God. The word for born here, ganao in the Greek, it's a reference to salvation. It refers to a change in nature. Remember later in John 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. You must be born again to be saved. You, you recall that, of course. Literally, it's the same word, by the way, the same word for born. And Christ in John 3 literally says born from above. He's talking about the new birth. It's the requirement for salvation, something that must happen to you. And the point John is making here is, is that man's descent, man's first birth, even man's will can't make you God's child. A spiritual birth must take place. You've got to be born from above. You've got to be born of God. And that takes place not according to man's will, he says, but God's will. This new birth it's an act of God. It's one of the main themes of John's gospel, which runs throughout the whole book and, and actually comes mostly from the mouth of Jesus himself. That's true. We access the power of new birth by faith. But especially in John 3, we learn we're, we're just as much in control of our second birth as we were of our first birth. Right? It's something that's why he uses birth imagery, because we're, we're passive. We receive. It happens to us. And our will is out of the equation. How much did your will and your plans take a part in your birth? Zero. I mean, you weren't even born. You had, it was all up to your parents. And likewise, it, it's God's will that, that is in control of our, our new birth, which is why it's called born from above. And he says, not according to the will of man, but of God. God's birth is required to become a, a child of God who are, and those who are born not by man's will, but by God. Very clear, and it only continues in John. Question or comment? Yeah. Um, Acts chapter, chapter 11, verse 18 says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentile house of repentance that leads to life. So it was given by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a good example in Acts 11 of how God granted repentance leading to life those in the crowd. And it, that the verbiage of God giving or granting, we'll see later, it, it's his to give and ours to receive. Yeah, that's right. We'll turn now to John chapter 5. We'll, we'll keep going here. The next verse, John five twenty one, a, a quick one, which, again, we have seen before, but continuing to point out now, it still stands as a verse supporting unconditional election, namely that, God chooses and saves according to his will, and Christ is as well. 
John 5, Jesus, he's teaching here on his equality with the Father. He says, verse 21 of chapter 5, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Again, there's another direct term used of will. And isn't this, this whole question is about will, right? Man's free will versus God's will. And we found zero verses saying man's free will is responsible for anything in salvation. But over and over, we're just starting to see verses that it's God's will. It's Christ's will. And he gives life to, to whom? To whom he wishes. Jesus teaching that just as God, the Father, has complete power over life and death, well, so does Jesus. And Jesus grants such life to those whom he wishes. It's just another verse. It's a quick one, but it's another verse painting the picture where, where Father, Son, they're in the driver's seat of salvation. They're in control. They're enlightening whom they will. Jesus was revealing that the, the Father is, is giving people to the Son, and the Son is, is giving them life, opening their eyes, and, and, and giving them salvation. That picture continues in the next chapter, John 6. More familiar verses. We'll just pick out ones we've, we've studied before just to, to make a simple point. We'll look at 37, 44, 65 again. John 6, 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then at the end, verse 65, Jesus says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Let me look at this chapter a lot. All throughout John 6 and John's Gospel, we see Jesus inviting all people to believe. And we believe that. We invite all people to believe. We tell all people to believe. The gospel goes out universally to all. Just like Jesus did. A universal call to salvation. But you can't ignore the verses here where Christ reveals many times how people will respond and why they will respond. And the only, people, the only reason people do respond and Christ teaches can respond, remember verses on ability, is because the Father has given them to the Son, because the Father draws them, and because the Father grants them life. That's what we just read, 37, 44, 65, to name a few. Why do people believe? How can they believe? Jesus says, no one, can't, no one can even do this unless... The Father's got to give them. The Father has to draw them. The Father has to, to grant them. And, and trusting them and, and enabling them in Christ to believe. As we learn, man, according to his own will, his own fallen nature, his own limited ability, can't do this. He can't come to Jesus. It's like uh, the, using the example again in, J in John 11 of Lazarus. Christ calls him from the dead to come forth. He can't respond. He's dead. He doesn't have the ability to respond to that call. He's, he's dead. You, you can say whatever you want to a corpse. They, they can't respond because they're dead. They're unable. And that's our picture. We are spiritually dead. And uh, although we're called, all people are called to believe, but they're just corpses. 
They're dead. They're spiritually dead. They can't even respond to the call to come forth to Christ. But Christ, when he wills, and when the Father wills, provides power behind the call and to, to those whom he chooses. And when that call goes forth with power, a effectual call, we'll learn later, they believe. They come to life. And with the call comes the power to believe, to raise them from the dead. Just like Christ mentions in this passage of giving them life in the last day and, and in their new birth as well. It's just another, again, we're going to hear this a lot, but another picture of God in control of salvation from start to finish. It's, it's his will. It's his salvation. It's his plan. Now, for the sake of time, I'll read this next one for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. You don't have to turn there. I'll be quick. As we saw a few weeks ago. It says, but by... God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Referring to, of course, salvation. Remember the context of the end of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He talks about our calling. Verse 27, God's choice. You know, God chose not the wise, but the fools of the world. Remember that verse, that passage? And he says, verse 29, no one can boast. We've received all things. God chose us. Who can boast? And then he says in verse 30, which I just read, that it's by his doing, by God's doing, that you are in Christ Jesus. It, this, that, that's explicit. That's clear. There's no mention of foreseen faith or man's will. It doesn't say, by the doing of your foreseen faith, you are in Christ. No mention of that. It's just it's God. God's responsible. By his doing, you're in Christ. In fact, God chose the weak, the foolish, those who had nothing to boast of. If, as we pointed out a couple weeks ago, if we were elected and chosen because of our foreseen faith, our free will, then we very much have something to boast about. We can boast that, well, we believed. That makes us at least a little bit more special than all the rest. Uh, but this passage flies in the face of that. There's no boasting because we, we, what do you have that you didn't receive? And that includes our very salvation. Let me also read for you Galatians 1, 15 through 17, briefly. There Paul says of his own personal testimony. He says, When God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. That's Paul talking about his calling to salvation and to ministry and what he did thereafter. But the point he's making is that in his life, God separated him from birth word for separated there, it's, it's related to the word for, for predestined. And Paul is testifying how God took a sovereign initiative in his life. God set him apart from birth, which is true of all believers. Paul, what, what did Paul do? Nothing. In fact, Paul, when he was Saul, he was God's greatest enemy. He was public enemy number one of the church. He had, he had no, nothing to boast of in that regard, no true faith. He was an enemy, but simply because, as he testified, God chose to reveal Christ to him. 
whose choice was was at work there? You remember his testimony in Acts 9. It, he, his will was not even a factor. He was on his way to continue to, to jail and persecute Christians when God totally intervened, seemingly out of the blue, and he overrode his will and, and drew him to himself. God straight up just converted him supernaturally. And guess what? Your conversion was just as supernatural. You may not think it, you didn't maybe not saw a light, you weren't blind for a couple days, but it was just as supernatural because you were dead and then you were brought to life, spiritually speaking. And just as supernatural, God God did that. And Paul testified this was God's doing. If God didn't do this by his will, by his choosing to reveal the Son to Jesus, where would Paul be? He'd still be Saul. He'd be no different. He would never have changed. It's up to God who wills, not man who runs. Okay, now we can turn to Ephesians 1. Here's, here's the big one. This is a significant passage. They're all significant that we've looked at. They all, they're all clear. We've been saying several times that the, the Arminian case, it's not clear. It's not based on the explicit teaching of Scripture. It's just human reasoning and, and deduction and, and implicit verses. But it's really not the case with unconditional election. These verses are clear. They're explicit. It expressly says it's up to God's will, which is, that's a definition of unconditional election, right? And it, it gets no more explicit than Ephesians 1. Like, this is, this is as clear as it can be, and it's, it's really just going to speak for itself. I'll read it, and then we'll, we'll go through a second pass to explain a little bit more. Ephesians 1, just follow along. We'll read 1 through 14. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He already starts pointing out he's an apostle by God's will. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to, the kind intent, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession 
to the praise of his glory. Now, there's a lot. But you probably already picked up on a lot of it, I trust. It, it doesn't get a whole lot more explicit than this. And this passage is notorious for piling on the language of God's choice. And it's everywhere. It's consistent. It's all God, his choice, his will, his plan, his purpose. This is this passage is like the definition of monergism, which we studied. Remember that just it's God's responsible for salvation. This is the definition of unconditional election that it's God's it's God's will that's responsible. God alone. I know these these words aren't going to mean much to you, but I just by way of illustration that, that the Greek terms and verbiage used in here it's it's so piled on. Just don't even bother writing these down. It's not like you're going to remember them anyway, but. You know, in this in this passage alone, eklego to choose, to select, klerao to choose, to destine, proarizo to foreordain, to predestine, partithemi to purpose, to intend, prosthesis to plan, purpose or resolve, bule the intention or deliberation, Th- uh, thelo or thelema God's will or intention, udokia God's good pleasure or his act of his will. All these Greek terms in here, they're just piled on. They're they're just throws them all in here and they all pertain to the same you know same basic concept god's will god's plan god's purpose god's choice god's good pleasure and so forth and that's really the the theme of this section just to to comment further we have here clearly stated first you'll notice the fact of election the fact of election verse 4 verse 5 verse 9 verse 11 the fact is clear verse 4 he chose us Verse 5, he predestined us. And remember, we did a whole lesson on the fact of election, right? So, okay, we get that. The fact of election. God chose us. He predestined us. So, you don't dispute that. Thankfully, no serious Bible-believing Christian disputes that because you'd have to argue against verse 4 and 5. He chose us. He predestined us. Okay. So, the fact of election is clear. God elected. God chose. God predestined, right? The time of election is clear, verse 4. He chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. Okay, we get that too. That's not terribly hard to believe. God made this choice. He elected when? Before, before creation, before he made the world, he made some decisions. God chose, okay, these people are the elect. They will be saved. He made that choice. He destined people to that end. The fact of election, the time of election are clear. Now let's talk about, thirdly, the basis of election. And that's, that's the golden question here, right? On what basis did God make that choice before the foundation of the world? The, again, that's the whole theme of these past couple of les- lessons. Arminians, Calvinists, both, both believe in the fact of election and the time of election. They both believe God made that choice of the elect before the foundation of the world. On what basis? Man's will? God foreseeing who would come to believe and choosing those who chose him? Was it man's free choice? Or God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, God's mercy? Well, let's, let's find out. I'll point out four different bases, or I think the word is bases, right? How do you pluralize base? Bases. <laughs> Four, uh, four different reasons for God's choice. We'll put it that way here. 
the, the basis of election. First, God's love. His election was based on his love. Look at verse 4 again in the middle. Or at the very end, you'll notice uh, verse 4 uh, ends and then it says, In love, verse 5. So look at verse 4 and 5. It says, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And that's good. No one disputes that. It's worth pointing out, though, that God's choice was motivated by his love. We'll, we'll talk about God's love a lot later. I'll save that for future. But, but still, God's love, number one. Number two, God's will. God's will. The second reason for his choice or motivation for his choice was his own will. Keep reading in verse 5. It says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And then he adds on, According to what? The kind intention of his will. There's that word we saw back in Matthew 11 of, of God's good pleasure. His kind intention. God, as we studied, he, he sits in the heavens and does what he pleases. That's what this is talking about. According to the kind intention of his will. It just, it pleased him to choose these people. We, we don't know why. It's his hidden counsel. We, we can never answer why, why this person, not that person. That's God's hidden counsel. All we can say is, it was according to his perfect yet hidden will. We were predestined, verse 5, according to the kind intention of his will. So what's the basis of God's choice? God's love, number one. God's will, number two. God's favor, number three. God's favor. Continuing on to verse 6. He says after that, that we were predestined according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And speaking of grace, it says, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. We are predestined to the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This word, freely bestowed, means to show favor to, to bestow favor on someone. Our salvation, for which we were predestined, it comes by God's grace which is his undeserved, unearned favor, and, and God's grace, he lavishes it on, on us. It's, it's for free. It's unconditional. God's grace is conditioned on nothing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. It would be merit. If, if God's choice of us, if his salvation of us was based on some condition, it would no longer be grace. But this, this favor... It was up to God. It's just pure grace. He simply chose to, to bestow his favor on these people. His decision. Now God's grace and favor are further highlighted in verses 7 and 8. Just read those real quick again. It says, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Again, our salvation from start to finish, from, from calling and choosing to redemption and forgiveness, it all comes by what? God's grace, unearned free favor that God's in control of, of doling it out, and he just lavished it on us. It's all in his plan and his purposes. 
Now, speaking of, then in verses 9 and 10, he expounds on God's will and God's plan. Let's read those again, verse 9. At the end of verse 8, he says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. What he's saying here, that's kind of wordy, but he's talking about how God will unite all creation in and under Christ. But the point, the simple point we can make here is that Paul is teaching that God, he's working all things according to what? Verses 9 and 10. His will, his kind intention, his purpose. He's actually saying not only are we predestined, in verse 9 and 10 he's really saying everything is. All creation will be summed up in Christ. God has planned out and predestined world history. It's not a surprise to him. And God's, 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 God's plan for the world is what will eventually happen. And, and so you're going to say that doesn't include our salvation, that, that God's in control of everything except our salvation? It's not what these verses teach. One more. For, uh, you could say, reasons for God's choice. God's, the, the basis of his election. God's love, God's will, God's favor. Number four, God's purpose. It may sound redundant, but we're just going with the text. It was what the text says. God's purpose. It's explicit. We're not making these words up. We're just taking them out of the text. And so at the very end of verse 10, it says, In him, in Christ, also, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. And here he says it again. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That, I mean, how do you argue with that? He just said it. Like, in him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, salvation. And and then it says, having been predestined. According to what? According to forcing faith, according to good works. None of that. According to God's purpose. And, And by the way, God works all things after the counsel of his will. This is as clear a statement on unconditional election as you're going to get. But what else do you need after that? I mean, that's it. It's settled. Unless you really want to fight Scripture that hard and and twist these words that hard. You can really try and engage in some verbal gymnastics here. I don't see how you make that say anything other than that. We were predestined according to His will. It works all things after the counsel of His will, His purposes. God has a purpose for all creation. He predestined this purpose from the beginning. He's now working it all out according to his will. And that includes our salvation. We're not excluded. This is the definition of unconditional election. God made all these choices alone according to his will. Nothing foreseen in us whatsoever. We merely benefit. We merely benefit from his choice. If there's ever a time Paul could have mentioned that God actually based his choice on our foreseen faith, and this is it. That's what he's talking about. The whole context is election and the basis of God's choice. This is it. But to the contrary, he doesn't say that because that's not true. He just says it how it is that God chose according to his own purposes. Tim? Yeah, 
Uh, in, my, uh, in my Bible here it says in 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Now, uh, lastly mentioned, just real quick, the goal of God's election, just since we're studying this passage here, the goal of his election, we notice the fact of his election, the time of his election, the basis of his election, which was God's love, God's will, God's favor, God's purpose. And lastly, we'll just point out the goal of God's election. And to put it simply, verse 6, verse 12, verse 6, he predestined us to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, he predestined us according to his purpose to the end that we would be to the praise of his glory. He says it once again in verse 14 as well. And the point is, God works all things to what? To the praise of his glory and grace. To suggest our election was conditional gives us reason to boast and really flies in the face of God's glory and God's grace. It's really robbing God of his glory. His choice was, really, his choice was forced. It wasn't gracious. God was forced to choose those whom he foresaw would, would choose him. But to the contrary, this, this passage defines unconditional election. And this is why it's all to God's glory, because it all comes by God's grace. This is why we give God all the glory and we will for eternity because everything we have, every aspect of our salvation, we owe to his grace. Again, this is why it's called the doctrines of grace because it takes seriously and holds high God's grace, that this is all to the praise and the glory of his grace. God chose us and predestined us before creation to be saved to be in Christ, to be adopted, to be forgiven, to be redeemed. And he did all this according to his plan, his purpose, his will, his good pleasure, nothing in us. Now we must believe, he says that in verse 13, you know, having also believed in hearing the gospel. But this passage explains once again why we believe. We believe because we were chosen. We were predestined before the foundation of the world. And only at the very end does Paul mention our faith. Arminianism states that God chose us because he foresaw we would believe. But Calvinism and this passage teaches that, no, God chose us in order that we would believe. Apart from that electing choice, we, we wouldn't. So there you have Ephesians 1. It's, it's substantial. I mean, it, I don't see how you can really argue against it, although many I try. I think their efforts are in vain. It's just so, so clear. And again, when you match this up to the case for conditional election, there's no comparison. It's, it's a house built on sand versus a house built on rock, at least in, in my own opinion. Now we've got a few more to go through. And I think we'll make it. Let me, for the sake of time, I'll read for you the next few verses on your, on your list there. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in us 
from all, and in, was, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. There's a short passage, there's two verses, but it's like a summary of Ephesians 1. It says that God saved us and called us, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us, given us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So it's like a summary, right? God from eternity past, he saved us, he called us according to his own purposes. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, a short but really powerful, succinct passage. If you want to take someone to like the cliff notes of Ephesians 1, and there you have it. There's the short version. Titus 3, 5 says that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Another quick verse that just points out that the entirety of our salvation from election to glorification it's all owed to God's mercy. You could add, you know, we point out God's love, God's favor, God's will, God's purpose. You could equally add God's mercy to that list. In fact, we'll see that Romans 9. We were chosen simply by, according to God's mercy. And what, is that, what does Romans 9 also teach? That God has mercy on whom? On those whom he has mercy. It's just up to him. That's, that's, just, that's just how it is. Listen to James 1.18. This is actually a, a huge, hugely important verse that it's, it's so quick, though, you read right over it without thinking about it. But it's actually a very significant verse in James. James 1.18 says that in the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'd be kind of, a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We look over this verse because in the English that this phrase that God brought us forth kind of slips by us. And we don't get the significance. But this phrase that, that God brought us forth by the word of truth, it, it means salvation. It's just another, it's a, it's a parallel to being born again, that God made us new. He, he brought us to salvation. How? By the word of truth, by the gospel, right? We were, we were brought forth by the word of truth, that we'd be first fruits among his creatures. When you get that, you notice the first part says that God did this in the exercise of his will. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Another verse saying that we, we've been saved, we've been called according to his will. There's so many verses that explicitly mention God's will and none that mention man's. When it comes to God's calling, choosing, electing, and saving. Well, let's finish up now and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans 8, and we'll read verses 28 through 30. Where he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Notice here in the passage we, we've looked at before, verse 28, the foundation of this whole thing is, is what? God's prosthesis, meaning his purpose, that word used in Ephesians 1. God's purpose stands at the very beginning of this, right? God is causing, he, look, he's active, he's causing all things to work together to good for, for his people. To those who are called according to what? His purpose. People jump to 29 and, and make much of it. Remember, we, we spent a whole lesson studying the Arminian view of foreknowledge and refuting their view of foreknowledge. So verse 29, if you've got questions there, go back to lesson 9 and you'll get the long version. We're not rehashing that here. But understand this whole thing of our salvation, it starts with his purpose. God's purpose drives the whole thing. Now it does say, verse 29, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And as we found that this foreknowledge speaks of God God knowing people beforehand relationally. It's him entering into a relationship with, with the elect, those whom he chose. This, this is God setting people apart from the beginning unto himself. And again, look at our previous lesson where we established that. But God's purposes in creation started with this foreknowledge, this relationship with people. Where he set them apart for his special love and then he destined these people predestined them to become like Christ, to become conformed into the image of Christ. Both of these words speak of God's sovereign decision to elect people based on his purposes. His purpose drives it all. And really the whole point of the the passage is to encourage people who may be suffering by letting them know God's in control of all things. He's working all things together and nothing can stop his purposes, which from the very beginning, have included our salvation. All five of these verbs are in the aorist tense in Greek. God's foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying. They all go together, and they all come from God. He's he's in control of these, uh, not us. So although Arminians try and point out verse 29 as their verse, we say not so fast. Really, these verses continue to teach that God works to save from foreknowledge to predestination. It's really according to his plan, his purposes, not man's. All right. Well, after this in your notes, you'll see Romans 9 through 11. Uh, I knew we weren't going to make it and have time. We're like, we're really going to go through all of Romans 9 through 11 right now. Not going to happen. So we're going to end here. But the good news is that next week or next time we gather... This will conclude lesson number 10, where we've, we've really explained and explored unconditional election. The next lesson is all about questions and objections that people have uh, against unconditional election. We've seen God's choice. We've seen the basis of his election. And it's pretty clear. But even after all this testimony, some people still raise objections against unconditional election. Even though it's so clear in Scripture, look, some people just find it hard to accept. They have those objections like you guys have mentioned. It just, you know, it doesn't seem fair. Or how can that be just? How can God still condemn people when they weren't chosen? And, and the list goes on. They've got objections. Or maybe some people, they don't have objections per se, but they have questions. Maybe you right now, in hearing all this, you go through these verses, and look, you're wrestling because in your mind, like, it's clear. 
it says we were predestined according to his will, his purposes. But, I mean, how, how do you respond to the fairness issue? Or, you know, doesn't that make evangelism void if it's up to God's will anyway? And maybe you just have honest questions, which is good. Either way, though, we're going to come back next time and devote all of our time, a full lesson, to, to answering all of those top questions and even objections that have been raised uh, for and, and against unconditional election to continue to encourage you that God, God really is in control and it actually does make sense. There are answers to the questions you might have and we'll see those from Scripture as well. Then when it comes to Romans 9 through 11, we will come back because so much of it uh, at Romans 9 has to deal with Paul himself answering questions and objections to what he taught about unconditional election. So there's actually a few more verses we'll look at. We'll just, we'll really dovetail them into the beginning of next week's lesson in Romans 9 through 11, pointing out a few key passages and then really getting into answering those questions and objections. So come back next time. I'm sure you'll want to hear that. But still for now, be encouraged from what we've already seen. As, as is the point of Romans 8, that God is in control of your salvation. And for those who believe, for those who love him, we now know behind the scenes he loved us first. And we can be truly encouraged when it says that nothing can separate us from the, the love of God in Christ. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? If you're among the elect, which you know by your faith, your perseverance, you can take that the greatest comfort knowing that this God, he's in control. We've been sealed from eternity past. Nothing can separate us. That gives us all the comfort, encouragement, the courage we need to, to just press on with, with great joy knowing we're safe in God's hands. So let's do that. Of course, we'll come back and we'll learn much more as well. Let me pray. And we'll be, we'll be done. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we are really blown away by what we've learned this evening. And your testimony in Scripture, it's so clear and it's profound. It's all over the place. You've peeled back some of the veil of your motive of how you made all things and why you made all things. This entire creation was yours. You're ultimately responsible for it. You chose to create. You made this world. And we'd like to say you knew what you were doing. You had a plan. You had a purpose. And that purpose, ultimately, Lord, is your glory. For you are glorious. You are worthy of praise from all creation. And you will get your praise, both from those who are saved and not saved, Lord. And, and we know, as you've revealed, you've chosen graciously to save some who don't deserve it. None deserve it. Get in your grace, in your mercy, in your love, according to your will and your purpose, Lord. You, you chose some out of the fire. Why? To make them trophies of your grace, to the praise of, of your glory and grace, Lord. And, and by your grace, that's us. We don't know why. We know we weren't special. Why did you choose us? Why have you called us? We cannot answer. All we can do, Lord, is say thank you. Thank you that you did choose us. We, we still are, are burdened for the lost. And we, we will preach the gospel to the entire world, Lord. But, but we count on you to save. We know that unless you call forth those who are dead in their sins cannot respond. So we'll be faithful, indeed even encouraged to press on learning what we have tonight, but we still count on you to continue to work for the salvation of others while we thank you and glorify you for our own, Lord, 
Thank you for the work you've done in our lives. Thank you for, like Paul, opening our eyes and, and revealing Christ to us. And may we now really live to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.